Blog Talk Radio. Tom Donaldson on the, uh, the Donaldson Files. Uh, Coco Konski is taking a sabbatical tonight, uh, but I will be on with a special guest. Now, we have made some changes in our schedule. I'm going to apologize in advance. Uh, will Riley will be on tomorrow night. He could not make it tonight. In fact, uh, he's at, he, at the university. He teaches that he's got a COVID meeting, speaking of COVID. So he's going to be coming on tomorrow night to talk about research he's been doing. But I do have with me uh, Justin Hart of Rational Ground. We'll talk more about uh, Justin here in a couple of minutes. I am the chairman of America's PAC, uh, which is one of those evil uh, super PACs. I'm also a research associate, project director of America's Majority Foundation. I've overseen at least 35 studies over the past uh, 10 years and the author of eight books, including The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism, as well as the box, should-be boxing classic about uh, black, the history of black boxers in America, Boxing in the Shadows. And like I said, all my books should be bestsellers, but they're not quite there yet. So, But for those people who want to know how to make sure that the, to help me make The Rise of National Populism and Democratic Socialism a big hit, and in bestseller, you simply go to Amazon.com or to PostHillPress.com. Now, call in 646-929-0130, 646-929-0130 uh, to join us. And I'm going to introduce Justin Hart. I, uh, Justin is a – and I'll, I'll let Justin describe himself. But he is uh, one of the – I guess, are you the founder of Rational Ground or one of the founders? One of the founders. We have a few there. And, uh, yeah, we're, we've, we've just launched our website, rationalground.com, as a fact-based, reason-based alternative to some of the chaos that your listeners will see in the COVID world. Okay. All right. Well, what – yeah, so – so again, uh, six four six nine two nine zero one three zero. Okay, uh, go ahead and Justin, kind of give people your background. Yeah, my background is as a uh, I'm basically an interim chief data officer, chief marketing officer for companies around uh, the country and around the world. Uh, I work to help businesses understand how data, trends, charts, analysis can uh, make their businesses work better. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a virologist, but I'm a darn good data guy. And one of the things we've been lacking sorely is darn good data in this COVID world. Now, normally, you know, I wouldn't insert myself into other people's expertise and domains, but they sure seem to be inserting themselves into my domain a lot, into my life, into my education, into my business, into my health. And so they'll forgive me, I hope, if I check their mouth, their math, and I've, I've checked it, and, and frankly, it's all wrong. 
Uh, and it has been wrong from the beginning. Uh, my journey with sort of COVID started about two years ago when I was hospitalized with a staph infection. I had got a cut on my elbow. And for some reason, the staph, which is a natural flora on your skin, got into the bloodstream. And I was hospitalized for two weeks, nearly died of septic shock uh, because I didn't understand that this tiny little thing in your body is attacking this tiny little thing can become a very big thing for yourself. And uh, so at, at that point, I started to study, like, what, what are the effects there? What are my chances of dying? What, what really happens here in virology and epidemiology and everything else that, that sort of associated with um, a pathogen or something that attacks your body and your body tries attacking it back? Uh, and when COVID came out, I was dutifully concerned. I saw this in January, saw it in February. And if the numbers were true, which were coming out of uh, China, I was going to be very, very, very worried. Uh, initially, the, the WHO said the fatality rate was about 3.4, uh, and they started making a lot of mistakes. And, and many of your listeners will be able to make these same assessments for themselves because the, the basic function of, uh, of, of virology and epidemiology is to understand the burdens that a society has to bear as they go through this. And so the CDC, for example, every season when they look at influenza, they say, okay, well, how many people are getting infected? How many people visit the doctor? How many of those have to be hospitalized? And how many of those unfortunately die? And if you think about it in your business, you, you have the math to do this yourself. You have certain amount of people that are leads, that are uh, opportunities that you want to pursue, and they become prospects for customers, and then eventually they convert to customers. And we call that the funnel, right? Well, there is a funnel involved in this, and that was my first clue that something was off because as you started adding up the numbers from the first countries that started getting this, you realize something is off. This is not the bird box contagion movie pandemic that they had uh, sort of planned this out to be. In the beginning, we were willing to go around with it. 14 days of a lockdown. Let's take a look. We don't quite know much about it, but we learned about it very quickly. And now that 14 days has turned into 169 days. And the, this is really, you know, our, our focus is all about trying to get America back to normal, back to work, and uh, basically trying to quell the innate fears that have happened and, and been perpetrated by our elected leaders. Yeah. Well, yeah, but here's the, yeah, yeah, but here's the thing, uh, you because know, you know, I want to kind of make a point, because one of the things, you know, people, because I got this uh, Twitter, like, uh, minimizing the virus, and what I've tried to do to me is put it in proper context. And, and one of the first things I noticed, and I want you to kind of comment on this as well, the infection fatality rate, the IFR, is, is that when these numbers start coming, like in March and April, and around March, I said, you know what? If we get 2.2, about point, you know, my first time, we're not going to hit 1%. We've been hit between 0.11%. And I kind of guess, my estimate was, you know what? We, if we hit about 0.5%, Fatality, which will be more than the flu, but certainly far less lethal than what we originally thought, which, by the way, is now becoming the scientific consensus. And, Absolutely. and I think sometimes yeah. people, and, and, and again, I, you know, like I say, because I had somebody said, you know, you know, one of the Twitter, somebody tweeted me this you know, afternoon, I, you know, you know minimize this because she gave me a story about some poor guy who got sick, got really sick and ill. And and said, I, you know, I view this as the flu. And I said, oh, you know, my, I've always said 0.2 to 0.6. 
which is more than the flu we've had since the 68 pandemic. Now, the 57-68 pandemic, you know, based on what I've read, is very similar in lethality, but not necessarily the same in striking different population, but certainly the same in lethality. Uh, yeah, and I, I think that's one of the main things that people need to realize are the relative risks that you face in this. Um, you know, if, if I can tell you the difference, for example, one of the big differences between COVID and influenza is that if COVID killed like influenza, we would see thousands of dead teenagers and hundreds of deceased infants. The one thing we can say about COVID is it thankfully spares much of our youth. In fact, if you are under the age of 45, it's basically essentially approaching zero, the risk that you face for, uh, for COVID. Well, when I say that uh, a, someone who's under the age of 15 has uh, a better chance of getting hit by lightning than dying of COVID, I'm not making that up. That's a statistical fact. And, when you, and that's one of the things I try to do is relate these things because not a lot of people know the context of what happens on a daily life in America, right? 5,000 people die every day. About 8,000 people die every week in nursing homes, 40,000 nursing home deaths in a month, and we have these gradations. So when you put it in that context and you understand that the average age of a COVID death is 78 and 80 compared to the 1918 pandemic, which I think was in the high 20s, uh, the, the low 30s. Yeah. Can you imagine if the median age of someone dying of COVID was 28, 29, and 30, right? When, you, when epidemiologists, when you, when you look at this from a societal basis, obviously we mourn every death, but you make policies based on reality, right? Like we can empathize with someone who is going through a challenging, uh, a challenging incident in life, just like, Someone might empathize with me. I had a 30% chance of dying there uh, in the hospital of septic shock. And I had to spend two weeks in the hospital. I had pleurisy of the lungs. It was very difficult. Someone can empathize with me. But I don't demand that people be welded inside their house, lose their jobs, have their kids locked to their deaths for the next six months and lose 1,000 hours yeah. of in-person learning because of that. So those yeah. are, those are yeah. the context. Yeah. yeah. Keep a hold of that thought, this Tom Donson. Uh, with the Donaldson Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio Broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files here with Tom Downs, a special guest, uh, Justin Hart uh, of Rational Ground. And also, don't forget the Bachelor News Radio Show with your host, L.A. Bachelor. The show discusses issues of race, policing, injustice, inequality, religion, and yes, even sports. It affects black, brown, and poor people negatively. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time at blogtalkradio.com, L.A. Bachelor and rebroadcast every day at 6 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. If you're interested in having your own shows or advertising, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. And also, ladies and gentlemen, don't forget you can listen to this 
broadcast uh, 3 a.m. and 10 a.m. every day, Eastern Daylight Time, at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. 3 a.m., 10 a.m., Eastern Daylight Time, or midnight and 7 a.m. Pacific Time. So it's never too late to be well-informed and to listen to the Donaldson Files. Call in at 646-929-0130. Okay, now you, just, you kind of mentioned a point, okay, that you were seriously ill with septic shock. And it's an obvious. So I guess maybe the question I'm going to ask you, you know, what did you learn about our medical care or the medical system uh, in those uh, in that in those two weeks? Well, I actually was impressed by our medical care. They I had a, a very good virologist who uh, was able to to help me through infectious disease a specialist there who who helped me through uh, those two weeks and beyond. Uh, and I think that's one of the big challenges that we look at. Because the, the reason that we shut down, if you can remember back that far, was to basically avoid an issue where hospitals might be overrun, right? Because yeah. the people who had made that policy thought so little of our healthcare system that they projected every hospital would turn into a mass unit. I think you could probably put on one hand the number of hospitals that actually had serious overruns. And they were mostly centered around a couple zip codes right there in New York City. For the most part, there hasn't been a, a single state uh, stat that causes me to concern over the entire course of the pandemic. Uh, you would need to recall, though, the people that basically said every hospital would turn into a mass unit are the same ones that hate our healthcare system and want it to turn into a single healthcare paying system. And so part of this may have been purposeful, which is can we overrun this here? Uh, but in the end, you saw, for example, the boats on either coast. You saw the massive convention centers being turned over. And I think you could probably, maybe there were 100 patients across all those multi-tens of millions of dollars that were spent to help for overages. Now, it was a good dry run, but frankly, I'm not going to go through that again. And one of the purposes of rationalground.com is to make sure that after this is over, we're helping people get the tools they need to change the policies. Because it's, it's been amazing. Have you noticed how, how quickly things went from wash your hands to weld them inside and how unelected officials, health directors, had so much authority over your life and your business and your church and your family's education. And so that needs to change. That's one thing that I think we've learned from this whole uh, unfortunate episode. Well, let me ask you, here's, let me throw this out because we've had, I mean, like I say, tomorrow night we're going to get more into lockdown versus non-lockdown states uh, with Professor William Riley, who originally studied this you know, and, and wrote about it in the, in, at the end of April in Spike, the British Journal. And then he completed a study uh, for you know, America's Majority Foundation, America's PAC, uh, dealing with again, you know, as a follow-up, and and I guess the question I'm going to throw back to you is: it, we've had kind of this massive experiment, but you know, let's look, you know, let's look at the Swedish experiment. On one hand, the argument against the Swedish is that they had higher numbers than their fellow Nordic states. 
uh, that would be the criticism. Yeah, and, and, right. Now, now if, so, if you look at that, there, there are a lot of you know details. And actually, there's a great article on Zero Hedge today describing those there. One of the things you have to realize is that uh, there's, a, there's a lot of apples and oranges comparisons, but the virus is going to do what the virus is going to do. And, and a lot of times it's very unpredictable. Um, some of it can be attributed to seasonality. Some of it can be contributed to density. Some of it can be attributed to different age populations. Some of it can be attributed to um, how your previous flu season was. So, for example, one of the reasons that Italy got hit so hard was that there were, they had a very light flu season at the end of 2019. And so, if you will, there was a lot of kindling, a lot of, tin, a lot of tinder that, they, the, the, that the COVID could burn through there, and typically as this affects the older generations. Most of the deaths that have happened from COVID are what we call pull-forward deaths. If, if you are interned into a long-term care facility, you typically will exit that um, usually in death in about three to six months. So a lot of the deaths that we're seeing from COVID would have died this year. Now, that doesn't justify not stopping it. That just doesn't justify not, you know, we have to mourn these deaths and everything else. But it does give you some perspective to understand, like, are these sort of in the trends of things that are flowing already, or is this something vitally and vastly new that we need to stop in its, in, in its tracks and keep everyone inside. And I think the, the, the case is no, not for this one. And it's unclear whether keeping us inside would have stopped it anyways. Because the, you, know, you look at Hawaii, for example, I was supposed to be there in July. They were uh, arguably one of the most locked down states. They're an island, right? And they had everything under control and then boom, it opens up and, and it floods right in there. Now, don't look now, but if you look at deaths per million, uh, we are just, I think, maybe two or three deaths away, a couple hundred deaths away from uh, meeting Sweden, uh, where they are in their deaths per million. Eventually, every country has to go through the gauntlets on this thing. Thankfully, the gauntlet is just not that deadly as initially uh, proposed. Yeah, it's kind of follow up on that, because so you I mean, first one, number one, why don't you explain to people the infectious fatality rate versus confirmed fatality rates? Because I think there's sure. always that confusion no, I, because, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so the, the way that the, the CDC and other government entities track this thing is they, they look at, again, this kind of funnel. Uh, in terms of influenza, the way they track it every year, and you can go look it up. If you Google, for example, 2017-2018 uh, estimated deaths, influenza, you'll see the whole stack they have there. And they have a table. It's really nice and clean. And basically they start at, okay, we have so many people that we think are infected. In the highest flu season we had recently, the 2017-18 season, they estimated 44 million people got infected. Then about half of those people, they say, went to the doctor, about 22 million. And then um, a portion of that maybe 10 plus percent, I can't remember the math off the top of my head, about 800,000 of them went to the hospital. And of those, between 60 and 100,000 of those people died um, from influence and from the complications that come from it, right? The human body is not so concise and easy that it tells you, this is what I'm dying from and this is what I died from. It's usually very complicated as this week's news has borne out. And so we see the same thing. So the the calculation that we're looking for is, the deaths, that is the 
60 to 100,000 deaths that we saw there divided by the 44 million infections, which comes out to about 0.14 or so deaths, depending on you know, how you're doing the calculations. And that's how you, you typically look at these things. You want to understand from a seasonal basis, are these deaths that we're seeing? And in fact, as CDC will admit that a good portion of the deaths that uh, we saw from COVID were deaths that probably would have happened from influenza and pneumonia and other diseases as well. So that's how they look at it. And so it's, there's the case fatality rate and the, inf and the infection fatality rate. And just a quick difference is the case fatality rate is we tested a lot of people and we know that they have the disease. The infection fatality rate is there are a lot of people that maybe had a sniffle, maybe had COVID, didn't even know it, and never went to the doctor, never got tested, but they should be counted in that as well. And that was the big, big change up as we learned very quickly early in April that a massive portion of the people who actually get COVID don't even know they have it, don't have any symptoms, and likely will never suffer any consequences from it. And when you take that into consideration, you realize that the fatality rate is, is probably about twice what it is for influenza. And so we have to get a good handle on this and understand it all together. But it doesn't attack uh, ages by the same way influenza does. And that, that should be taken into account too. In fact, had we spent half as much of the energy as we did around masking people up and welding them in their houses and taking that energy towards protecting those who are most vulnerable in our long-term care facilities and nursing homes, we would have fared much better. Now, I, I guess, uh, yeah, let me put it this way. First of all, number one, right now, when you look at California, Texas, Florida, Arizona, and Georgia, would you say they're on the downside of the uh, with hospitalization deaths in cases? You know, are you seeing a decline? Absolutely. From list? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and one way you can do and, that is, you know, all of the data that we have originates at the county level. There are 3,141 counties around the country. And one of the things you can sort of think of those are beacons, right? These are beacons that are telling us all the data. The data from the county gets rolled up to the state. The state reports it to the CDC or otherwise. And then we have, uh, you know, the results that we see on our dashboards days later. The data lags, which is a whole other story. But on this purpose, what we're talking about is the, those counties, for example, at the height of the pandemic, 63 to 100 counties were reporting about, uh, about 10 deaths a day or more. And now we're down to just 14 counties reporting 10 deaths a day or more. So that tells you kind of where we've come from, from the high point. And it's also, uh, uh, you know, just think about it. Some of the beacons, a lot of the beacons are going dark, so to speak. Okay. Now let me put this in California. Where was the hardest hit? in the most recent uptick? Well, now, down here, uh, in, in, I'm in San Diego, and uh, Southern California, Los Angeles, was particularly hard hit, I think because they have a very large population there. Uh, but, you know, in terms of ratio, uh, the number of beds that were occupied by COVID patients never got to a critical level. I think in all of California, it never went beyond 20% of any of the hospital beds. Now, here in San Diego, we're dutifully good neighbors. And uh, we have a population here in San Diego of 3.3 million. The population of Baja, California, in Mexico is 3.3 million. But they have five times as many deaths as we do because their hospital systems really wasn't prepared for it or because they have other factors there. And so we had a caravan of, hospital, of ambulances that were 
taking people from the border each day to our local hospital conglomerates. Now, unfortunately for us and our businesses, that counted, we think, against um, our population. And so the, popu- the, the hospital rate was unseemingly high, uh, but for false pretenses. A lot of those came south of the border. And uh, what, by one account, by one hospital down there, I have it from inside information, 35% of all COVID patients had contact travel with Mexico. So uh, a lot of that was coming from south of the border. But now, for example, across the board in California, uh, our hospitalizations are the same number they were at the beginning of April. And so it's, it's very low, and we're thankful for that. All right. Okay. Now, if we're at that point, again, California is weathering the storm. Uh, you can say Florida is weathering the storm. And they're on the downside, very similar to where New York was in May on their, when they started their downside. When the, uh, you know, first of all, explain the concept of herd immunity. If somebody says to you, herd immunity, uh, what does that mean? What does that, what does that mean? Yeah, in terms of herd immunity, the worst case scenario would be an outbreak of polio. Um, and that would take a lot of people, because it's very infectious, to surround, if you will, the person who has uh, polio, people that might be immune to it, to keep other people from getting it, if you will. But one of the things that we've learned very quickly uh, is that herd immunity in terms of other pathogens has required a population to reach 60%, 80%. Just to give you an idea, these viruses don't go away. We still have impacts of the 1889 Russian flu and the 1918 and the 1957 and the 1978, 69 and the 2009 H1N1. Those are all still with us. If you pull up the CDC chart and when they're putting their mixture and concoction together for this year's flu shot, they typically say, well, we're seeing a lot of H1N1. We We should put in some stuff for that, right? And my guess is that this will probably roll into that feature set as well. But what we've found, thankfully enough, is that there is a lot of cross-immunity. Now, the uniqueness of coronavirus, of this SARS-CoV-2, is that it is a coronavirus. Now, it just so happens that 30% of all common colds are this type of virus, but SARS-CoV-2 gets into your body, and that's what creates the disease called COVID. But what we're finding is that there is a lot of cross-immunity, or likely a lot of cross-immunity, so that a lot of people having common colds will be having no problem whatsoever withstanding the barrage that SARS-CoV-2 brings and avoid COVID-19 altogether. So the percentage that you typically would want to see about 60 or 70% of the population before you say, ah, we have herd immunity is now as low as 10 or 20%. And we can see that in the flow of things. Uh, If you look at California, Florida, Arizona, Texas, as we call them, the FACT, who were this sort of secondary wave that we saw coming through the country on these lower populations. There's a seasonality aspect to that, but we won't get into that. Notice that they're all on the same parallel there on the same latitude. That's another story for another time. But what we know is that as soon as each one of those states hit about 10 to 15 percent, everything started going down so that by the time the thing peters out, about 20, 25% of the population will have received it. And that's why you look up in New York City, they're all clapping themselves on the back for being so good at social distancing and masks. It really had nothing to do with that. 
they're already at 23%. The serology studies that are out there show that. And the, here are the Donaldson Files. Coco Consi is on sabbatical. Well, she will be back with us tomorrow along with uh, Will Riley of Kentucky State University. Um, again, we had to make some uh, changes uh, due to, uh, you know, uh, scheduling, but uh, we appreciate Justin for coming on tonight, and Professor Riley will be joining us uh, tomorrow. Here are the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is Tom Donaldson here with the Donaldson Files. Welcome back. Here's the thing. You, here's the phone number you need to call, 646-929-0130. Or if you're just on Twitter right now, you can tweet at the Donaldson Files uh, as well. So that, too, is another way to get your questions answered if you choose to participate in today's show. And don't forget, uh, here on the Donaldson Files, Every day, 3 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the bachelornews.airtime.pro, you can listen to this show twice a day, 3 a.m., 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, or 12 and 7 a.m., 12 midnight or 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. All right, let me ask you this question. Now, speaking of the flu, uh, right. Here's the thing. We're running right into the flu season. And, Correct. The flu starts at week 39, the, just around the corner. Yeah. And the question I'm going to throw back, because it seems to me, I've got, I mean, like I say, I've got my notice, uh, you know, from the local pharmacy, come get your flu shot. But I think it's, you know, to me, you know, the one thing that I kind of fear more than everything else, if you have a flu season on top of this, you know, what the panics, you know, what the additional, and certainly, you know, you know, uh, the other thing is, you know, I, I had a conversation with this with another individual. I said, well, you've got a lot of patients who survived the COVID, maybe, you know, my, you know, a little bit elderly, a little bit frailer, and they, and they may have had a much worse than a mild case, possible lung discovery. Uh, you know, how do you kind of view that? Plus, flu season also, the flu tends to hit younger patients harder than, let's say, COVID. So, if you're sitting there planning, I mean, you're the California Health Commissioner. You know, what's your advice to the public at this point dealing with the flu, dealing with COVID, how to deal with this whole mess? Look, I think one of the challenges that we've had, if you recall the flatten the curve issue, wasn't about reducing the number of deaths we're going to get anyway from the virus. It was about lengthening them out until we could, for example, handle the issues of the hospital, which wasn't an issue, or until we got some sort of treatments, which we have now. We have some really good treatments that are lowering uh, the case fatality rate altogether. And so the, the problem that you're going to have is there are a lot of communities, for example, north of me in the Bay Area, who are going to start coming out of hibernation 
and they're going to be butting up right now up against flu season. So you very well may have in certain situations a double whammy where people are facing both COVID and the flu, which is why it's so important that the only way through the virus, the only way over the virus is through it, right? I'll give you an example. One of the things that I'm very thankful for are for the Latino community here in Southern California. And the reason why is that they, uh, they basically ignored a lot of social distancing after Memorial Day. And they just said, this is just, you know, we're, we're, we, we get together on the 4th of July as families. Nothing's going to stop us from doing that. The Latino, the, the largest growing population of cases in California was Latinos between the ages of 18 and I think 34. Now, the cool thing is, or the interesting thing is, that at the end of May, there were about 20,000 cases of that. Now, there are over like 100,000 cases of Latinos between the ages of 18 and 34. But guess what? The deaths went from 20 to like 60, right? To zero, right? Very like statistically unmentionable in many ways. And of course, these are deaths that we mourn. But the, the, the lesson learned there is that if you're under the age of 45, your chances of dying of COVID are very, very slim. And in fact, what that did is it created immediate herd immunity for that population and for populations here in Southern California. I can't say the same for some of these same populations that continue to hide from the virus and think they can hide from the virus only to come out in the open and face it along with flu season. But in truth, I think, uh, you know, the, the worst is actually behind us, as I see it. And we're not going to have a second wave. In fact, most of the uh, experts out there who were crying about this coming to the 1918, you remember the 1918 pandemic, yeah. as they told us, had an initial sort of bout. And then the real big wave came in the fall. It looks like we're not going to see that at all here in the fall. So we could be very thankful. But again... Uh, you know, this is just something that, that you have to get through. There's no way uh, over it except for through it. Well, I mean, well yeah, but let's, okay, let's go for this. Here's a thought. I'll throw this out as a thought. Okay. To me, if I was sitting there as the health commissioner, I would say I would almost advise everybody from, you know, students all the way up to elderly, get your flu shot. So the two reasons for that to me would be, number one, if you get an illness, doesn't feel right. You know, a doctor can say, have you had your flu shot? The first thing he may do is he may say, I'm going to test you for COVID first, working on the assumption that the flu, you know, eliminate the flu as a diagnostic. And certainly children are far more vulnerable to the flu than they are to COVID. You know, that would be to me. Now, the question I would throw back is when we get the corona, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine, uh, compared to how quickly we do, you know, is that something you want to universally give everybody? Or do you sit back and say, we'll start with the vulnerable first and see what the side effects are with the risk versus yeah. benefit? Your thoughts? Yeah, we, we, usually vaccines take years to develop. So pushing something through like this is very dangerous. Uh, but it's also welcome. We want to try it out and see what's going on. But, but look, people think of vaccines as a panacea. The CDC will admit that vaccines only reduce the deaths in an influenza season by maybe 10, maybe 12% or so. I don't know if you know that, but the efficacy of vaccines and flu shots is maybe around 30 or 40%. Now, that's terrific. I'm really glad that we're able to avoid those burdens on our society when certain people do, are able to overcome the flu very quickly because of flu shots. 
but it is not a one-shot solution for this thing. We have a governor of a major state tweeting out today that they're not going to open up until there's a vaccine, and I'm afraid they're going to be very sorely disappointed because the flip side of keeping people inside is massive. It is not an exaggeration to say that more people will die from the lockdowns than will ever die from COVID. And I can show you on different age ranges how that is. For example, um, if you're a, a teenager, a high schooler, there are typically about three to five to 6,000 suicides per year across the country. Um, a simple 1% uptick in that because of the shutdowns, which is generous, would absolutely eclipse several times over the number of deaths from COVID. More kids will commit suicide from the shutdown than will ever, ever be harmed by COVID. And then you looked at, for example, 85% of living organ transplant surgeries were not done. Two-thirds of cancer screenings were not done. You look at, go to Virginia, go look at their child immunization records. They're down by half. Can you imagine? I mean, we're actually losing lives on the far end because we've deemed it necessary to quarantine healthy people. That's, it's insane what we've done. It literally has no precedent. And uh, the fear has gripped us so tightly that our policy has gone whack. Well, yeah, let me throw this because, I mean, it's, it's easy you know, to play Monday morning quarterback. Uh, because here's the thing. You're, you're a governor. You're the president. And you've got, okay, Tony Foster, who basically in February was looking at, ah, this is 0.1 to 0.1%. Maybe, you know, we could get through this. Suddenly in March, he said, you've got to have a 2% mortality rate. The WHO is saying 3 to 4%. 2 million Americans, which would be basically yeah. the equivalent of what the Spanish flu would be today, uh, you, know, you know, going on a per capita basis. You know, I, and I guess my question would be, if you're the president or you're the governor and you're being told, hey, we're going to lose 2 million people, uh, you know, Certainly, you're going to react differently than you just say, well, we are going to have a virus that is going to hit 95% of the people who are going to hit are going to have comorbidity, our senior citizens, as opposed to younger population, and we may lose maybe 200,000. And we could avoid some of that by simply not putting COVID patients in nursing homes. Sure. I mean, that's not the, the problem is they were given. We, we have, we have never, ever, ever in the history of these pandemics – shut down entire sectors of the economy. There have been a couple towns that have been quarantined. There have been a couple populations. But we have never, ever done anything like we've done where every single state basically shut down massive industries, and we had double-digit unemployment populations. And the impact is massive. When When we turned and said, well, you know what? Anything that is beyond COVID can't come into the hospital. There were 650,000 Americans who have cancer, they're on chemotherapy, and during the first two months of lockdown, half of them didn't come into chemotherapy. Right there. Boom. That's enough dead to completely overshadow what's happening there. Thousands of tumors were biopsies, known tumors, two-thirds of cancer screenings that weren't done, half of childhood immunizations, as I mentioned. And that's just, that's just the medical part. When the one sociologist noted that for every percentage of unemployment that a population realizes – you can add 41,000 deaths due to depression, suicide, overdoses, uh, drug use, alcohol abuse, um, or general theft and things that happen that way. So you do the math, 25 times 41,000, right? 
And this is just – we have never done this. So when we talk about Monday morning quarterbacking, all of a sudden the team started playing like cricket in the middle of a football game. And we're like, what is going on? We've never done this before, and we should never, ever do it again. Yeah. Well, that's all there is for Tom Dawson. Uh, Coco Kostman, co-host, is on sabbatical tonight. Uh, but we do have Justin Hart of Rational Ground. Um, so – Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of the Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded conservative with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. This is Tom Donson. Uh, welcome once again to the Donson Files. Uh, first of all, don't forget you can listen to this show again on the bachelornews.airtime.pro, 3 a.m., 10 a.m. Eastern uh, Eastern uh, Standard Time or midnight or 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And don't forget you can call in at 646 929 0130. 646 929 0130. Okay. Uh, back to where, okay, we are talking. All right. Let me throw, let me ask you this question. Do you see the rationale, for example, you know, I, you know, opening up the sporting events by keeping them free of crowd. I, I think there's some rationale in a few uh, incidents of where things go. Large crowds, for example. Uh, I always attend a certain conference up in San Francisco that brings 100 to 200,000 people uh, every year. And I might have second guesses about going to something like that. Uh, but I, I think in general, that's probably the exception. I would say one of the problems that we have is that we re, we've, we've come to realize in the last month some very, very keen things on what we call the asymptomatic problem. That is, we believe that there are a lot of people who don't know they have COVID because they have no external signs of COVID, but they still might be contagious. Well, the literature now is almost definitively against that, that the transmission from asymptomatic people to other people is very, very, very low. And imagine what impact that has. The reason we're all shut down, asymptomatics. The reason that we're all shut down from schools, asymptomatics. The reason that we can't go to, to, to movie theater, I mean, it's all because of that, right? And so now we have to yeah. sort of change our rethinking. And again, it's just another notch on this awful, awful experience that we've had where our scientists have been very wrong on a lot of things that have impacted a lot of people. But I would say there's general precautions that we can take and we can feel good about those. But, you know, like masks are an interesting problem. I'm not a, necessarily an anti-mask person. I just know the science and know that it's rather ridiculous. But when I go out, I dutifully wear a mask because my fellow Americans are seriously scared. Well, they did a, a recent poll, a survey of Americans, and they asked what percentage of people in America 
have died of COVID? And the average answer, Tom, was nine. People think yeah. that 9% of the population have died of COVID. They believe 30 million people have died of COVID. And so there's this just massive fear mongering that's going on. And when I tell them that if you're under 65, your chances of dying of COVID are the same chances that you take driving to your commute on your way to work every day. And if you're over the age of 65, your chances of dying are about the same as dying if you're a professional truck driver. So a little higher, but not very much. And when you put it in that perspective, we should try to dissipate this fear as much as possible. I think the pendulum needs to swing back. Okay, let me put this. Come, we'll go to the California. Is okay. Yep. Now, as a state, compared to other states, they've done fairly well death per capita. I would probably say if you look at the top most populous states, you know, and I'm looking at Florida, Texas, Ohio, Georgia, California, New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania, four of which are red states, four of which will be blue states. They have, they, you know, they have the lowest, but they also, their economic side of the equation, let me see if I can get their unemployment number, is, okay, the July unemployment is 13.3%. The percentage of claims, which is the most recent uh, civilian population, is like 16% are in unemployment claims. I guess the question is, first of all, number one, what did California actually do right that New York, Illinois, and Pennsylvania, other states, in particular New York, did wrong? At least well, we, we the, don't know yet, frankly. I mean, we've been, we've been masked up since March, and we thought that would save us. But then our cases basically burst upon the scene, mostly here in Southern California, because we were close to the border and because of seasonality issues that happened. And, and so what we're, what we're finding is that, again, as I said, I don't know that California is through the gauntlet yet. I think they still have some ways to go, and we'll, we'll see. If you, if you look on a county basis, um, some of the highest per capita death counties are right here in California, right at the border. So while it's fair to say you know, California on a whole from a massive population did pretty well, the game isn't over, and also our counties that uh, did go through the gauntlet here in Southern California, a lot of them didn't fare very well at all. Well, yeah, but except follow up that. Okay, I'm not. I'm not going to play you a double because in this regard, because you've Good. made, you've already made the point that in particular the Latino community, that the younger Latinos have basically been the ones getting infected at a high rate, and certainly Correct. the percentage in California. I'm going to get, you know, off top of my head, I don't know those numbers. You may know it, but I know Florida. You know, the last time I checked, it was like in the mid 40s. You know, three months ago, it was in the mid-70s. And certainly when you have a younger population getting sick, the overall death rate won't spike anywhere near as high as if you have a higher percentage of the elderly getting sick. And certainly California, based on what I'm seeing, and correct me if I'm wrong, are in that category where there's, you know, the younger patients tend to be the ones getting the most sick. No, no, the younger patients are doing just fine. I mean, they, they go into the hospital. Yeah. It's basically an in-out procedure. They get a, a shot. And, and I think they, that, that California uh, had the fortune of going through its wave uh, in uh, July and uh, in June and July rather than April and May because we didn't have a lot of the treatments. We didn't know a lot about these things. 
And you can see that in, in Florida, for example. Florida did a, a masterful job. They have a massive increase in, uh, in cases there, uh, but they've been able to quell it very well as far as the number of hospitalizations, uh, the case fatality rate uh, among uh, the other, you know, the main age groups has basically halved every month as we've approached things because we've realized a lot of things that can help in this procedure. But uh, okay, yeah, it, good, it, good. I, I think in general, California did, did, did okay, especially compared yeah. to New York and New Jersey. Uh, but it, it, you know, I'm, I'm cautious because uh, I know there's, we're, we're still hiding. We're still hiding from the virus. I, my, my, uh, we have a, a park down the way and the swings are still tied up. I can't let my kids go outside and play. I have two kids who are still going through Zoom classes right now in the other room, right? And, and we have, like, zero deaths in the last, like, five, six, seven days here in San Diego. So it's super frustrating to see that. And I think it basically just you're, – you're, you're prolonging the inevitable. And I fear what happens when California finally says, oh, well, we can all come out, and then they may lock down again, which is what happened in the last few weeks. We opened up, and then they got concerned because cases increased. Deaths did not. Neither did hospitalizations, but they freaked out. And everything petered down from there. Well, man, but that's this quick question here. Dealing with the elderly, was California following yeah. closer to what Florida did as far as, you know, like nursing homes, you know, not putting COVID patients in nursing homes, but certainly concentrating on that? Would you say they were similar to that versus you know, what they did in New York and New Jersey, which was the complete opposite? Well, initially, uh, in the first stages, they did exactly what New York and New Jersey did, which was really unfortunate. Uh, but we'll, we'll be able to know here in the next little bit what, what really transpired. It's difficult to say right now because data is still coming in. Yeah. Well, have they continued? Maybe my question on that, did they continue to do that or did they quit doing it quickly? Uh, no, they, they, I think they quit doing that. Uh, again, we – we're still yeah. trying to get all the data we want from the state. We have to sue yeah. the state and the counties to get the data we want because we don't hear from them a lot. So it's unfortunate. All right. Well, the reason I'm at, the reason I kind of put that up because if you're at that point where, again, if you're, and certainly if becoming, if you're looking at herd immunity, where the younger patients are tending to get more and more of the ones getting infected, and they're the least likely to die, and they're more likely to have a herd immunity. You know, it would sound mm-hmm. like to me California is at that point where, you know, they're not going to get anywhere near where New York was, and they may be closer to where Texas and Florida are right now, as opposed to. Well, I, I hope so, but yeah, but but consider that you know, uh, San Francisco is as far away from San Diego as New York is from North Carolina, and so you know, this is not like a you know a sales tax that affects the whole state on a gas crisis uh, overnight. This is something that has to regionally sort of get there. New York is as far from San Diego, for example, as Moscow is from Gibraltar. And so that's why it took so long for these things to sort of work their way through, especially as the country shut down, the airlines shut down, the roads shut down. And so, you know, San Francisco, and I'm actually from the Bay Area. My parents still live up there. My parents are in uh, an age bracket where, you know, they're in a risk factor as well. But I'm, I'm concerned for my friends in the Bay Area because they've waited so long to open up. Uh, and now when they do, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the economic side. When, uh, California is still, once again, what is the economic cost as you see it? Because, I mean, you look at, the, again, the unemployment numbers, 
it's like in July they're thirteen point three. Uh, the only you know, yeah, and, and the question I would throw back is, you know, what which is going to cost you more in the long run? Shutting the economy down, where you basically are shutting off businesses and communities, versus trying to deal with the virus. What's the well, what's the, the problem is that our yeah our, our entire mindset has to change. You've seen, for example, a lot of schools come online and then quickly close down colleges, universities, high schools, elementary schools, because they see a few cases. Uh, They had, for example, I think 160 cases recently, University of Louisiana, wherever it was. Not one of them went to the hospital, but that shut down the school. And it was a ridiculous decision. And so we have to change our mindset because cases are not bad. But until that happens, uh, yeah, California is going to stay shut down because all the health directors and Governor Newsom and everyone that's sort of at the state level fears cases and they don't understand how a virus operates and that you have to get, oh, you go through it to get over it. So I, I think we're, we're kind of stuck. We're kind of stuck in a very difficult situation. Yeah. All right. Uh, first, let's, uh, before we go any further, I do want to have you talk about rational grounds and some of the people that you are working with. Yeah, so I think uh, <laughs> yeah, misery loves company. And uh, I think I like that too. You know, we, we, we definitely are, I, I would say there's about 20% of the country that are uh, classified as agoraphobics, if you will, uh, when it comes to this pandemic and don't want to open up anything, would like to stay down, shut down. I think there's about, you know, 60% or so people who are kind of like, I don't know what to think because this is what I've been told. And there's another 20, maybe 30% of people like myself who are, you know, looking at the numbers and saying, uh, the impact of the shutdowns is not commensurate with the impact of the virus. And so uh, myself, my colleague, Aaron Jin, uh, who wrote a fantastic article um, about uh, evidence over uh, fear, and uh, that was quickly taken down by its publisher because they didn't like it. Uh, and we've seen this again and again as uh, you know, we've tried to fight uh, the powers that want to keep us shut inside. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm not normally one to, to fight against uh, – the powers that have credentialed themselves in this domain, but they are inserting themselves into my life in a way where I said, I'm going to check your math. And when we go and check the math, we realize the math is way off. So uh, there's a host of us at rationalground.com. And uh, what we do is we provide guidance to governors, uh, to congressional leaders, to counties, especially to activist groups uh, who are trying to get their counties open. Uh, a lot of this is because, you know, they, they don't know the information. They only see what they report in the press, and that's a very difficult and challenging thing. So we're hoping that we can, uh, we can see better days uh, in helping people understand what's happening. We provide, you know, charts, analysis, uh, infographics that really help people come to terms with what we're, what we're experiencing here. Well, yeah, could you give me some names of other people who are working with you? Uh, sure. Um, we've got a, a great uh, – a lot of these are under nom de jus of, uh, like, for example, Hold2, who is uh, one of our great analysts up there, and he does uh, some fantastic work. Uh, we work with Phil Kirpin, who has been doing some a tremendous work um, putting together uh, long-term care facility numbers. Um, we work with uh, Kyle Lamb, who's a podcaster like himself, and he, uh, he has a tremendous uh, clout as far as building up charts uh, we've got a, a host of people in, you know, have different expertise. I've got one guy out of Tennessee who is like 
the go-to person on all things Tennessee. So there's a, there's a lot of people that we're very, very proud to associate with um, who have uh, a lot of great following online and elsewhere. Uh, but mostly we're just like-minded people who have read the numbers and realized that the overreaction is such that we need to, uh, to make some serious changes. Okay, and uh, again, kind of talk to uh, tell everybody how they can a rational ground. You know, they got to repeat the, uh, you know, how they can get to rational ground, as well as follow up on your Twitter site where where they can follow you on Twitter. Sure, it's uh, rationalground.com, and my Twitter handle is Justin underscore Hart, and uh, you can find us on on Facebook at Rational Ground, or we have a a Facebook page, you can just search for a group called Let's Get Back to Work. That's really what we're all about is making sure people uh, are able to get back and provide for their families. Okay. And uh, I guess uh, I guess we got about three minutes left. So I'm going to tell you, uh, if somebody said to you in about two minutes, summarize COVID, two minutes summary what we should know about COVID. Yeah, the the deal is that they sold us a pandemic uh, that was supposed to close every hospital. They welded us all inside our homes because of the fear of the impact of that pandemic. Uh, those that that bill of goods they sold us never panned out, and uh, we never then reacted commensurately to release people from these lockdowns. And that's really what it comes down to. Pandemics should be taken seriously. We should have the tools in place to deal with them. We should facilitate whatever protections we can for the most vulnerable populations among us. We should mourn those who have been impacted by this. But COVID-19 is a pandemic on the scale of something we've seen before in 1957-58. It'll be uh, around for a while, and we'll deal with it well. But the the fear that we have is, is a reaction that we need to overcome. You know, uh, 400 years ago, they, uh, in, in the, the plague, there was an author who talked about that in Milan, Italy. And he talked about how the fear that gripped people's minds was more powerful than the impact and fear of the virus itself. Uh, and so I, I hope that we can come to a conclusion where we're able to wrap this up and find solutions and put in place some, uh, you know, some type of logical, reasoned, rational approach towards dealing with this from public policy. All right. Well, thank you very much, Justin Hart. I appreciate you taking your time and doing so at the last moment. Uh, tomorrow night, uh, Will Riley will be joining us. Tomorrow night, Will Riley will be joining us. Coco Kronsky and I will be questioning him on his most recent research. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network saying good night.
Hey, we want to welcome our listeners to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network uh, with my uh, co-host and best friend, Chief Swag Humphrey. How you doing today, brother? Man, you're overdoing it with that best friend thing, man. I, I tell you, you I, I haven't given you permission to say that. Oh, oh, you know what? I forgot, man. Let me, let me. I'm just kidding. I forgot. Man. I, I you know, forgot, man. You know you're my boy, man. You know you're my boy. You know you're my boy, man. Just playing with you, man. <laughs> How you doing today, sir? How you, brother? I'm doing. I'm doing good, brother. How about you, man? Oh man, I'm doing good, man. Just trying to stay, trying to stay dry. You know, I think we're in in uh, two states, man, where where we're getting a lot of rain. We're getting a lot, man. A lot of rain. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of rain and uh, you know, with a lot with a, a lot of other things going on. So hey, you know, we want to welcome our listeners to You and the Long, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh this is uh part three of a series of uh of our conversation about bridging the gap. And uh this week, uh Keith, we're gonna be talking about in this era of, of divide, how how do uh how does the law enforcement community uh, go about bridging the gap uh, with, with so many things going on. So we've got a an exciting show uh, uh, ahead of us, uh, a lot of good conversations about uh, bridging the gap and uh, how how do you do, go about doing that in the in the black community. But, you know, Keith, once again, we're, we're on and, and several things have happened uh, since our last show last week. And, uh, it's just uh see like man there's just some 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 trying times for for the country we're living in and 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 law enforcement is kind of right in the middle of it well, you know we are the first line of defense daily, and so we we have no choice we can't turn our backs on it uh and so that's why it's really important for us to have those positive relationships <laughs> in our communities uh with our communities and, and things like that to try to uh, navigate through these tough times because there are uh, man, I've never seen anything like this in my in my thirty two years. Law enforcement. Uh, it, yeah, it, I think you know it just seems like you know the more people that you know you have conversation with, it's it's almost like are we we're instead of going forward, we're going uh, backwards in 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 that um, <clears throat> relationship that. Uh, with the black community and with uh, with any minority community, uh, but it seems like the black community is just at the forefront of of having that racial divide between uh, the, their local police. And you know, somebody asked me, you know, well, somebody made the comment that you know, oh, that's kind of these are isolated incidents. Um, yeah, some some of them are isolated, but you know, Keith, the sad thing about it is when you hear almost every in every state there's something going on that is involving you know the killing of an unarmed black person or something that is questioned about how police have have interacted with with the black community and you know just yesterday i think there's a news about uh, a shooting in la where, where a gentleman was riding a bicycle so and, and he was shot, and so it, it, it's some. There are some things that this country and, and the, every uh, community really needs to 
uh, have some serious conversations about the direction of, of, of policing and where policing is going, um, especially with a pandemic uh, that we're still dealing with and uh, a presidential election. Yeah, and, and, you know, it doesn't give the community any, uh, make them feel any better when they know that uh, the DOJ, uh, when you have the attorney general that's basically saying that let's let police departments do do their job, to stop stepping in. It's not the federal government's job to investigate those type of things. Um, let police handle their business uh, by any means necessary. I mean, that doesn't help either. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and Keith, we, I want to remind those who are listening to the show that the uh, calling number to the show is 646-929-0130. That's 646-929-0130. When you call into the show, uh, you'll, you may hear some silence. The show producer will ask you if you have a comment or if you'd like to come on air. Uh, so, you know, if you have a, uh, a comment, uh, let the producer know. Uh, he'll get that to us. And, uh, or if you'd like to just come on air and have a conversation with us, uh, just let him know that, hey, you have a question and you would like to, uh, to speak with us directly because you will be on live. So, Keith, a lot of people – when they call in to hear us talking and they kind of, you know, they don't say anything. So we want to make sure that uh, everybody's given an opportunity to, to either just listen to the show or just call in and, and, and share your uh, comments with us. So, um, because we want to hear that's from what this, you. We want to hear from yeah, you. Yeah, we want to hear from you. From you know, and that, we do. Yeah, and that's what this show is about. I mean, you know, we are, you know, we discuss matters related to, to you and in in, in law enforcement and, and to really, you know, from my perspective of, of being in law enforcement, to, to give give some, um, you know, educated uh, information to to our listeners, and just have that uh, honest conversation, uh, as we stated on every show. You know, this is a show where we're going to talk about things that may be uncomfortable to talk about, but we're going to talk about them. Everybody may not agree with with our opinions or maybe that conversation, but. That that's what a a good uh, open dialogue is all about. Is you know we can agree to disagree, but at the end of the day, how are we going to make uh, the situation better than what it is currently right now? Yeah, absolutely, man. You, yeah, I, I can't, I couldn't say it any better. Yeah, and, and Keith, you know this this past week, you know, with so many things happening, and it's it's almost you know it 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 takes a lot to kind of keep up with with everything that's going on across the country. And, um, you know, several things have been posted to our social media uh, Facebook page. And want to remind our listeners that you can also follow us on, on our social media platform, which is uh, on Facebook. That's uh, you and the law on Facebook. Uh, you can also follow us on, uh, on Instagram and that's you underscore in the law. And you can also follow us on Twitter at you, the law one. So, um, have comments, please leave your comments on our Facebook page. Go to our Facebook page and like the page and share the page and with your family and friends. And uh, so, Keith, one of the things that uh, we're going to be talking about earlier on in the show is um, uh, an incident that took place uh, in the state of Arkansas uh, where a sheriff was um, – man, 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 man. It, 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 it is it, – you know, and a lot of people, Keith, is kind of like, you know, you shake your head, and it's kind of like we're in 2020, 
And and so here's a sheriff who has since resigned, um, uh, and uh, he had a he was having his girlfriend or ex girlfriend or whatever she is. She recorded the conversation where he used the N word repeatedly because she spoke to uh, a gentleman inside of a store in um, in Dewitt, Arkansas, and. Uh, uh, not too far from where I served as a police chief in Arkansas a few years ago, and uh, probably two hours from Little Rock, uh, Keith. But it's uh, uh, very disturbing uh, uh, audio to listen to. And so, for our listeners, we're going to play some of that. We're going to play uh, that clip and a in a clip of a news uh, release um, out of a news station out of Little Rock who actually interviewed the the gentleman that the former sheriff was actually talking about. Uh, his girlfriend had a conversation in a store with, with, with somebody that she knows, and he felt like she shouldn't have been talking to this end. And so uh, real disturbing. And the fact that this is a one of the – highest elected officials in law enforcement as a sheriff, and he has that that type of um, racial overtone, Keith. So um, very disturbing, man. So, Keith, we're going to uh, take our first – Very embarrassing. Yeah, it is. It is. So, so we're, listen, we're going to take our first break, and uh, you're listening to You and the Law on the Back of the News Radio Network. County Sheriff has resigned after a video of him using racial slurs made the rounds on social media. This morning, the Arkansas County Quorum Court calling a special meeting and calling for his resignation. Claire Kreitz joining us now with more on what unfolded today. Claire. Yeah, that's right, Bob. At first, Sheriff Todd Wright held his ground, saying he didn't mean it the way it came off, and he would not resign. After more community members took the podium expressing their feelings about the video and the racial slurs used, he ultimately changed his mind and resigned effective immediately. Nothing but cheers coming from the lawn outside the Arkansas County Courthouse as Todd Wright took his final walk as sheriff. Thankfully, with everyone's help, he he decided to resign today, uh, effective today. County Judge Eddie Buss says his resignation comes after this video circulated on social media. Why you got a holler? And it right can be heard saying a racial slur at least eight times. For him to come out like that, you know, it was it was just heartening because I know, you know, that hurt a lot of people's feelings. This is like my first time ever having to deal with any type of racism. Dominic Clark says he is the person Wright is referring to in the video. People like myself, scared to go outside, you know, scared to drive a vehicle, scared to walk past a cop, you know, for, you know, fear of being profiled just because you're black. 
In a special called quorum court meeting, court and community members spoke up calling for his resignation. Someone got to his heart and he decided to, to step down. Clark says he's happy Wright is out of office, but wonders about the rest of the department. It makes you think about the whole force. Judge Best says he hopes this swift action proves the county will not tolerate racism going forward. Quorum court is not going to let an elected official operate in that manner. I did reach out to Todd Wright. He did not have a comment at this time. Judge Best says the county will declare a vacancy September 8th at their next quorum court meeting. That's when they will decide whether to appoint someone or hold a special election. Bob. All right, Claire. Thank hey, we want to welcome our listeners back to you and the Long the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, we just listened to uh, an uh, audio uh, recording of the sheriff in uh, Arkansas who uh, has since resigned for using racial slurs, and we want to uh, also a clip that was provided by a local uh, Little Rock uh, uh, TV station who actually interviewed the gentleman who uh, the sheriff was referring to in his tirade uh, uh, with his with his uh, girlfriend. So, uh, very disturbing uh, audio clip, uh, Keith. The, the fact that uh, highly elected official. Uh, just uh, it, it's inexcusable. And the fact that he basically in the beginning felt like he was not going to to try to say that um, he didn't mean it the way it came out. How do you how do you explain that? So, you know, it is it's real disturbing that you've got a an elected official who uh, that was anger, man. Yeah, that was real anger. That was that yeah. was real anger toward that both the, his girlfriend and that and the gentleman that she was saying. I mean, that was that was one of those that he just exploded. You know, it's sort of like he had that bottled up in him for so long. I mean, you know, I know we all have bad days, we all have you know trying times, but it was like you know he was looking for that moment to express those words and those feelings. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things I had a conversation with with somebody who who made the comment that you know this is probably uh, you know uh, an everyday thing. I, you know, we can't say that because again, this was uh, something that was was leaked uh, and put out on social media by the person who recorded it. So uh, again, it goes to to this question, Keith is. You know, here here's a sheriff who uh, has been around for uh, that agency for over 30 years, and you know, a lot of people are now asking the question: What is the the culture of that uh, of that of that law enforcement agency? Are there other officers who uh, have worked under this sheriff who who have the same uh, thoughts about uh, about blacks in that community and? Uh, you know, and this is up around the Pine Bluff area, so there's a there's a large population of, of, of blacks who live uh, in that part of Arkansas, and and the fact that you know you listen to the gentleman who uh, who this uh, who was involved in this, Keith, and he now he's like you know, hey, you know, as a black man, I, I'm I'm kind of fearful of even just driving around. You know, what are the police going to do? So it just goes back to the conversation that we're having about bridging the gap in the fact that there is such a distrust between 
the black community and law enforcement and can can law enforcement really some kind of way start working to repair the damage that has been done oh absolutely i i think every day is a a a a, a job interview every day is a an opportunity to change the perception and the reality that some people have when it comes to law enforcement, you know, you just can't, you can't stop when you have things like this, any police department, even the, even the department that he was the sheriff of, now this is an opportunity to get out, um, listen and come up with game plan, ask the community to help. Uh, this is that opportunity, but you know, you, you do have those, those organizations that run and hide, uh, you know, you don't see them, uh, you won't see them in the community. Uh, they'll try to keep a low profile because they think that's the right thing to do. Well, that's the wrong thing to do. The right thing is to do is to is to uh, stand up, admit you made a mistake. Let's move forward. Help us grow. Help us help help us grow. Help us be better. Help us be better than this. We've got a stain on us right now. How do we clean that stain? Or how do we make that stain smaller? That's what you've got to do, and it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be overnight. You know, it's not going to. It may not even take. It may be longer than a year or years, but it can be done. Yeah, it it, it definitely can be, and 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 you know, especially with you've got so many people in in the communities who are who are really working to try to 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 make some change and uh, and to hold hold people accountable. Uh, but one of the things is that law enforcement has to really embrace that and, and really want to be a part of that, that change. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of like that saying, you take, you take one step forward and you, you take two steps back. Um, and, it's, you know, I, I listened to a, an FOP president who made the comment that, you know, it's almost like, no matter what law enforcement does, it, it it's not right. And, you know, you kind of have to think about that. How do you put that in, into context, Keith, is that, you know, if you're, you're trying to say that the community, no matter what you do, you're still not going to be doing anything right. So, but you have to, you have to be, you have to listen to the, to the people in your community uh, and understand their concerns because, you know, I think the the message is clear, Keith. That you know, uh, uh, policing in America is broken, and, and and there there must be some change. And and the question is, but how? How do you go by doing that change with policing across the United States? You know, I don't know. You have to have courage. You have to have courage to stand up and and, and do it. And I've said this before. Admit you're wrong. Let's move forward. Help us grow. But I will tell you that as an African-American, I know for a fact that African-Americans have given law enforcement um, so many opportunities, so many opportunities to want to believe in us, you know, want to really truly believe in community policing, partnerships, safety, and things like that. But then when they, you know, when we see things like we've seen on TV, and the things that we hear um, police say, especially about uh, communities of color or, uh, you know, the, uh, the those individuals that might be uh, in a lower socioeconomic um, category, 
uh, it's disheartening and it's very difficult. Uh, people may forgive, but they don't forget. And so I think that's the yeah. biggest thing that the law enforcement has needs to take from this. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the, there has to be an honest discussion about uh, how how to reform policing. And I think some people in the policing community may say, well, there's no need to reform policing. We're doing everything right. That They may have a problem, but we don't have a problem. But I think when you, you look at uh, – the the things that have occurred, you have to even acknowledge some of the things that may be occurring in your agency uh, that obviously is not getting any media attention. And, you know, I've said this, I've said this before, Keith, you know, cities are, are you're, you're one day away or one hour away from being a Ferguson or from, from being a um, Kenosha, Wisconsin, or from being, all uh, are you know Louisville, Kentucky, because it takes just the action of one or two police officers to to set uh, things in motion to where uh, people will protest. They will talk about how that uh, incident took place, but you have to be able to uh, acknowledge that there are some things that are going on. And it may not be known to the public. So, and I think that's a conversation, Keith, that uh, I don't, you know, agencies should really have is about how do you fix some problems that are within your department uh, before they become a Ferguson or before they become uh, a Kenosha, Wisconsin. I, I would tell all our, all of our listeners to do research on Camden, New Jersey's. Um, yeah, uh, when Camden, New Jersey, based, Camden, New Jersey basically dissolved their police department and went to a metropolitan police department. And the, if you look drastically, I mean, the, 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 there was a drastic change in, uh, in re- drastic reduction in crime. There was a drastic improvement in community relations with the police department, based on the fact that they clean house. Yeah, uh, they yeah. clean house and started and started from scratch. And and it it really did. Uh, it was a it was an amazing it's an amazing model to see what can happen when you really do realize that there are some problems there. You can do better, and the and the and the team that you have in place is not the ones that's helping make things better. Um, Camden, New Jersey. Do some research. I would ask the listeners to go and research that story. It's an amazing story. Yeah, and and when you talk about. Uh reforming police that that is a, a prime example uh, of reforming uh policing and and the the great success stories that they have uh that have come that have came out of all the effort that they put into to changing that culture of, of that police department and turning it uh, completely around so you know keith we uh, you know we also want to go ahead sir well, I was going to say this real quick. You know, and you look at this sheriff that, that, that was involved in this incident. And, you know, what we have to realize in law enforcement that it's not always the physical assaults, the use of excessive force. It's the, it's the, it's the intangibles that, you yeah. know, the, the body language, you know, the, the, those type of things, the, uh, you know, failing to get out of the car and, and things like that. It's not what you say. It's, it's how you, you know, what you say, how you say it, 
your body expression. You know, we, we talk about 80% of communications is nonverbal. And so when you have something like this that occurred, uh, it's this, to me, this was no different than one of his officers using excessive force. I mean, just the things that were said, uh, the things that were said, his demeanor, his attitude, um, you know, the, the arrogance, uh, the condescending tone, you know, toward uh, that gentleman. So it's not always about we got to stop thinking that it's about putting your hands on people. Uh, it's exactly. not always about that. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, hey, uh, before we take a, uh, come up on our, our next break, hey, we want to remind our listeners that uh, you can – also, listen to our rebroadcast shows on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. That's the bachelornews.airtime.pro at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with you with you on the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe Radio Broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Hey, we want to welcome you back to You and the Long, the Bachelor News Radio Network. Uh, we want to remind our listeners that uh, there are many other great shows that are on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and one of those shows is the Bachelor News Radio show with your host, L.A. Bachelor. Uh, the show discusses issues of race, politics, policing, injustice, and equality, religion, and sports that affect the black and brown and poor, uh, poor people negatively. You can listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at blogtalkradio.com uh, at L.A. Bachelor, and on the rebroadcast every at 8 a.m. and at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. And if you're interested in having your own show on the Bachelor News Radio Network or if you're interested in advertising uh, with us, uh, reach out to us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. That's labachelor40 at gmail.com. And, Listen and stay informed on the uh, Bachelor News Radio Network. So we want to remind our listeners that t- today you are we're having this conversation, our part three of our series, Keith, on uh, bridging the gap and how do we uh, how do we work uh, to bridge the gap in this era of so much divide uh, uh, with with so many things that have happened across the country re- related to law enforcement in the black community. Well, we gotta be flexible. That's another thing. We're not flexible. We're not. We're not flexible at all. You know, we we say that we do things because people say we should be doing them. We don't do things a lot of times because we want to do them or they're needed. Uh, we wait until things happen before we start looking at our training and we start looking at wellness and we start looking at community, our community engagement and things like that. That should that shouldn't you shouldn't um, have to wait until that uh, you know one of the things that I'd like to see more departments look at um, and really your 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 smaller to mid-sized cities which they're majority they're the majority of the police departments in the nation are 50 people or less 
if you just really think mm-hmm. about it. And and but then yeah. those departments really, at some point, they've got to have a strategic plan. Uh, and if you're going to do a strategic plan, you have to sit down and bring the community in to help you uh, help you develop that strategic plan. Um, you know, I'd like to see more police departments, even if you can't afford national accreditation. I'd like to see more departments get become a part of their state accreditation uh, process, uh, you know, to talk about industry standards and things like that. I think a lot of times um, when you're in a, a small to mid-sized city, uh, <clears throat> for the citizens that aren't familiar with that, it's it's really your police department's that serve cities of uh, of about 250,000 to 300,000 and under. Uh, a lot of times you have chiefs that believe they're intimidated by the larger cities. Uh, then you have some of the larger city chiefs that don't reach out to the smaller departments uh, and, uh, and offer their resources. <clears throat> and then those chiefs that just don't know where to go. I mean, you know, as far as the funding and things like that. So, when you don't have the funding, you do have to be creative. Uh, you have to be creative and bring people in. You have organizations out there that are willing to send people out to train you. You have to allow your people to go to training. If not, host the training. So you've got to be willing to come up and do creative things in order to make this work, in order to understand. You have to be a student of the profession. You just can't sit in your office and and read books and, and watch TV to see what's actually going on in, in the nation and law enforcement. You have to find out things for yourself. You can't be so quick to jump on the bandwagon with the unions and things, and you can't be afraid of the unions. Uh, you have to run a police department uh, from the inside out that you can be proud of internally and that the community can will be proud of externally. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and Keith, one of the things that I want to share with our listeners that, you know, this conversation about, uh, you know, building better relationships between the police and the black community, uh, this this is something that is that goes way back to the civil rights era. This is something that goes even back to, uh, and I know you're very, I know you're very familiar with it. We want to share with our listeners. Uh, in 1967, uh, there was the, the Currents Commission uh, uh, that was put out. Uh, it was adopted by, appointed uh, by President uh, Lyndon B. Johnson to investigate the cause of uprising and rioting that year uh, in, in 1967 and direct, uh, recommended ways to improve relationships between uh, police and the black community. But in the end, um, it just entrenched law enforcement as a means of social control. And, y- you know, you had neighborhood police stations were uh, put in, in, in public housing projects. Uh, so there were a lot of things that came out of that current, out of that report that in some, it, it was more of a negative uh, than, than anything positive because, it just it, it put law enforcement more in a control over uh, the black community, especially in the poor community, especially in public housing. Uh, so th- that's something that, you know, if our listeners are not familiar with, look up the, the Kearns Commission and, and read about that and, 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 and understand that, you know, the government has tried to intervene, has tried to do some things, but, 
Keith, I don't think that that intervention has always been uh, in a in a. It, there's probably been some positive intentions, but there were some negative intentions that came out of it. Well, there was two, and it's the, it's the Kerner Kerner Commission. And, yeah, and, Kerner. And, and, yeah. And Berger, well, Berger, there's been three. Uh, in 1929, you had the Wicker, Wickersham Committee uh, that looked at the same thing because there was a lot of corruption. Uh, in law enforcement, and they were looking at why there was so much corruption in law enforcement. And then you fast forward to, you know, you fast forward to um, 40 years later, 47 years later, almost 50 years later, 47 years later, <clears throat> then you look at the Kerner Commission, and then you look at 2015 uh, with the, uh, Obama's uh, 21st century policing. So in mm-hmm. nearly 100 years, you know, there, there have been three major um, calls for police reform, and although some of those, I mean, those even back in twenty nine and sixty seven, they talked about better education, they talked about uh, community engagement. But but what you have to understand, and to the listeners out there, and you don't take it from me and, and Virgil, you go back and you read your history. Law enforcement has always been. Uh, when law enforcement was formed here in the United States to be heavy-handed toward communities of color, to keep people under control, to keep communities of color under control. And and so uh, that's why, you know, you, you have, you know, the NAACP and LULAC and, and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement are basically saying, hey, this has been going on, you know, for hundreds of years uh, where police have been brought in heavy-handed. I mean, and so when, since when have we as police department, police um, officers, and you, in, in our time, Virgil, you know, our, our, when have we been brought in to stop somebody from voting? Uh, we're, we're never, never, we're, we're never brought never. in, yeah, and we're never brought in uh, <clears throat> for, for you know, people to protest at events like abortion clinics and things like that. We're brought in for the peace, you know, where people start getting you know, becoming agitated, becoming violent, but we've never been in, you know, in, in my, in my career, in my tenure as a, as a police officer, you know, we've never been brought in to do that. Now, reverse back 40, 50 years, that's what was going on all the time. Uh, you know, if you had a, a protest, you were, you were brought in, you were to be heavy handed. We didn't want these protests. We didn't want these problems. We're going to show people who we are. And so that's why mm-hmm. some people still have remnants of that in their minds when they see what's going on, uh, the George Floyd situation, when they see that stuff, they basically feel that law enforcement is brought in to control community, heavy-handedly control communities of color to get, to get them under control and to show them where their place is. And so that's, that's things that, that people have to realize this is gener- generational for some. Uh, this is this is what you know. Your great grandparents, your great grandparents, your grandparents, um, even before them, uh, have have had these experiences, and 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 they're telling their families and their kids and their grandkids about, hey, this is nothing new. And so that's why it's important for police chiefs to hear to know their history. Uh, and, and we got to quit focusing on the fact of police officers have to quit focusing on the fact of, well, the African-American community and the, the communities of color are picking on us. You know, you, you say we're doing everything we can do. Now we can do better. 
because um, we're all everybody who's wearing a uniform is is hopefully uh, wearing that uniform for the same purpose. And so I know it's unfair. It's extremely unfair for one police officer like the guy in Minneapolis to be um, for you to be compared to that person. But listen, it is what it is. It's not based mm-hmm. on the one incident in Minneapolis. It's not based on the one incident in, in Aurora, Colorado. It's not based on, you know, uh, Louisville, Kentucky. It's not based on Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin. It's based on years and years of and, and decades of of this occurring. Um, these are just the incidents that we know about. And, and I don't mean yeah. to take up a long time, but it goes back to what I've what I've said when I go out and do speaking engagements, and I've said this to my officers, is the fact that we had an opportunity to get it right again after the Rodney King situation. We had an opportunity. Yeah. We, we, and, to the, and to the point, we have done some things better. We've gotten better. Let me, let me just say that. We've gotten better at things. But, but, you know, at the end of the day, when we keep saying we're doing our best, are we really? What can we do more of? What can we do? We can always do better. You can't say yeah. in your personal life I can do better, but then in your professional life as law enforcement, we're doing all we can. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting that you bring that up, you know, with the Rodney King deal. I mean, you know, uh, you know, with that what goes back to, what, 1992, you know, after the acquittals of the three officers who pretty much just savagely beat Rodney King, uh, which was caught on, you know, on a citizen's camera in the uh, unrest that erupted in L.A. You know, I think there were, you know, if I remember right, Keith, there were probably 50 people died. Uh, and, and one of the things that that I found uh, while researching for the show was that, you know, uh, in, in 1994, Congress gave the Justice Department the authority to investigate patterns or practices of policing that violated civil rights protections. So the Justice Department has a lot of authority. And, you know, somebody asked me this question, is the Justice Department really a department that should be investigating policing matters because of their relationship with each other? Uh, The Justice Department plays a a key role in investigating violation of of civil rights era, you know, investigating, uh, you know, police misconduct that is, brought to the Justice Department. But, you know, Keith, when you talk about something that happened in 1992, then you talk about the current things that have happened from, you know, Michael Brown to Eric Garner to George Floyd to Breonna Taylor to all these other people that we can't even remember their names. It is just like what is really going on that why can't somebody get it right? And so – you know, uh, we're coming up on our uh, on our next break, and and we'll we'll finish that conversation uh, after we come back from break, Keith. About why can't we get it right? What are police departments doing? And even to include the Justice Department, what is not being done right to 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 change uh, some of the things that have occurred over the past several decades? So. Uh, you listening to and we you want and the law. Please call in. Yeah. Please call in. Yeah, please call, call in. And, and, and also, you can go into the chat room and leave your, your comments in the chat room, and those messages will, will get to us. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. <laughs> 
If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues, and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com. And if you miss the show, you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. Listen and be informed. Hey, we want to welcome you back to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And we also want to remind everyone that uh, you can listen to the rebroadcast shows of You and the Law uh, on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. That's the bachelornews.airtime.pro at 4 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And just check your local listening to catch our rebroadcast shows. If you can't catch us live, uh, uh, and uh, you can catch our rebroadcast shows. But if you're just now joining us, uh, we want to remind you that this is part three of our series of Bridging the Gap. And, and this week we're discussing uh, in this era of divide, how, how, do we, uh, how do we bridge that gap? How does the law enforcement uh, bridge that gap? And uh, we want to remind those, if we got people on the line that are listening to the show, you can definitely uh, come on air with us or you can let the uh, producer know that you've got a question or a comment. Uh, so don't be uh, radio shy. Come on and talk to us and let us know what your thoughts and concerns are about uh, bridging, uh, bridging the gap and what concerns you may have with uh, this going on in your uh, community with, with your involvement with, with your local, local police department. So, uh, you know, Keith, as we were talking, you know, about what happened in 1992 with Rodney King and all the other things that have happened and, uh and, 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 you know, since 2013, I think the Black Lives Matter movement has made uh, police violence a, a pressing national and local issue. Uh, and, and now you've got people who are, uh, who are really trying to make the Black Lives Matter movement out of some radical movement because of all of the things that's going on with the protesting. But the Black Lives Matter movement, is, is peaceful protesting. You, you've got a lot of people who are running around with Black Lives Matter T-shirts on, and they're instigating, they're, they're, they're looting, they're rioting, and uh, it's really starting to put the Black Lives BLM in a, in a spotlight that is really kind of taken away from the true message of what Black Lives Matter movement is about. Yeah, it, it is, Virgil, and um, it is, and, and that's the sad thing about it. You know, I mean, even police officers, um, you know, we've gotten caught up in this deal that Black Lives Matter is a radical group, you know, and it's just like people need to go back and look at their history about the Black Panthers and why the Black Panthers started. Uh, exactly. Was there yeah. some, was it, were there some tragic things that occurred? I think if you go back and you look at the history of the Black Panthers, there was over 70 uh, civic program started by Black Panthers, and like I've told you before, and to the listening audience, we don't condone violence, but I think people have to go back and look at the reason why the Black Panthers were formed, uh, and it's sort of like what this exact same thing of why Black Lives Matter was was formed, and you have to understand, and you have to be open minded, and and one of the things that's been a frustrating part of being a police officer. 
be an African American police officer, being a African American chief, the frustrating part of it is, is that you do have these officers that that shut down uh, when you start talking about the history, and they want to make examples of well this, 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 and this, and we can all we can all talk about things that we disagree with that that the people who look like us or resemble us have done, <clears throat> but. But I think the thing that makes the communities of color upset is that you minimize the purpose of the existence of these groups. Uh, you look for the violent things instead of the positive things that have, that have been doing. And, and the people who start these groups are, are not the ones that are committing these violent acts of the, the looting. Uh, they're, like I said before, those normally are the people that don't even live in those cities. But unfortunately, they get the brunt of it. You know, they're they're the brunt of it or get blamed for it. So we have to look at what the purpose of the groups were. Look at the purpose of the NAACP. Look at the purpose of LULAC. Look at the purpose of Black Lives Matter. Look at why National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives was started. National Black Police Association was started. National Form of Black Public Administrators. Look at why those organizations were founded. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you'll think you'll understand the frustration from the communities of color when it comes to what's going on in 2020, what's going on since 2015. We talk about things happening from 2015, but really when you think about it, go back hundreds of years and decades and see the things uh, that people believe are still going on that are still worse. And 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 I think then people will understand the purpose of these organizations and the purpose of the need for, for these organizations and strong leaders to stand up and, and speak out against the things that we're seeing. Yeah. Well, and you know, you know, you and I had this conversation uh, and, and, you know, pose this conversation to our listeners uh, as well. Um, are police officers becoming involved in things that are, that are not, really police-related matters. You know, we have seen police officers who have been called to hotels uh, because a mom and her kids were swimming in the swimming pool. Uh, the, the lady who worked at the hotel said she didn't recognize them or they didn't wasn't supposed to be in the pool. Or Then you see police officers being called to, uh, you know, to restaurants to because, hey, this person said, this this person wasn't supposed to be there. I mean, again, I just think it just kind of goes back to when does the, a police officer, if there's not a anything that has been that has happened that was a criminal act uh, that really calls for the police officer to be there, they really need to to remove themselves from that because, again, getting called to you know, uh, you know, a, a major chain hotel, you know, uh, because uh, a mother and her kids are swimming in the swimming pool, and now you, and now you want to ask that person uh, for their ID. You want to ask them what kind of car you're driving. You want to ask them where's your hotel car key at. And so now, when people start to refuse and not give you that information. Now it becomes a police matter because they're saying, well, you have to identify yourself. You have to tell me who you are. And things just go way left. But if you, if you don't put yourself in those situations, 
again, I think a police officer shows up at Howard, you know, at a hotel, uh, and and the clerk says, "Hey, you know, this there's some people that shouldn't be in the swimming pool." Well, Keith, we all know you have to have a card to get into a gate. You just can't jump over a gate. So who's going to go through all that trouble to get into a swimming pool and you got your kids with you? So use some common sense uh, with it because I think that just leads up to the tension that occurs between uh, the black community and law enforcement. Well, you know, it starts with that phone call, and, and you have to make sure your dispatchers have the proper training to ask those questions. And to the listening audience, really and truly, we 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 have to go to those. We have to go to calls uh, because what's a what's a uh, uh, emergency to you may not be to us, and vice versa. However, talking to that person who called in and giving the information does trigger hopefully common sense where you say, so you call me out here because you've got a person here that's swimming and you don't think they're staying in the hotel or you don't think they live in this apartment complex among the 600 or some units here just because you've never seen that person. Well, we're not getting involved in that. That's not a, that's not a police matter. That's a personal matter and we're going to leave. Um, I mean, those are, that's the way you can handle that unless somebody tells you something differently. You know, unless somebody gives you something to believe that an offense has occurred or about to occur. But it's not a crime for somebody to be, you know, uh, in a pool with their socks on. When you, when you hear about this, you know, or you've got a young man that, that accidentally bumped into a lady and she feels as though the young man, the nine-year-old was uh, – had sexually assaulted her or, you know, was inappropriate touching her. And then when you watch the video, you know, it tells, you know, it shows clearly that it was an accident. Then go, then leave, make your notes and just leave. Um, yeah. You don't always have to get somebody's information, you know, and it comes back to training. How are we training officers? Why are we training officers that you got to get a name every time you go out there? But then at the same time, we tell people, everybody doesn't have to talk to you. Everybody doesn't have to welcome up, be well, you know, warm up to you. There are just times when you have to leave. I think we're giving officers uh, dual messages. And, and, and so, you know, that's the frustrating part about it. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, when we, even when you go back and you think about previous things that have happened, uh, in the country, and especially uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with the uh, race riots, Th- those race riots were were started because of of a young black man, a male, was on an uh, an elevator, and a, a, a Caucasian lady accused him of of looking at her the wrong way or inappropriately touching her, and that set off the uh, the Tulsa. Uh, race riot, all because of something that somebody went and told law enforcement that happened that they didn't witness, and that just set off a, a, one of the the worst race riots this country has seen. Uh, but again, you got law enforcement in the middle of it, and and Keith, there is you know with with social media, you see so many videos of police officers interacting with, with young black men. Um, and, and a lot of it is, is they're not being honest. 
And it just kind of goes back to this conversation that we're having today is about bridging the gap. Uh, the you, you try to take an opportunity to build a relationship with somebody that they don't know you and you don't know them. And I'll share this with our listeners. There's a, a disturbing video I saw of, a, of an 18-year-old uh, high school, outstanding high school student going home from work or he's, he's on his day off. He gets pulled over. The next thing you know, the officers are asking him, does he have any guns or drugs in the car? And, he says no. He gets out the car. They search the car, and eventually they just write him a citation because the reason for the stop was because he made an illegal lane change. But they call a drug dog out. They go through his car. His mom comes out. She's upset, and that those officers just wasted any opportunity to build any kind of positive relationship with that young man. And he's going he's 18 years old. He's going to remember that for the rest of his life. Will he probably have some positive encounters with some other police officers? Probably yes. But he's going to remember that real negative encounter that he had with those police officers who pulled him over, um, basically said, well, the dog – said there was a scent of marijuana in the car, and so they searched him. But at the end of it, he goes, he gets put through all of this here, and he gets a traffic citation. So when you talk about bridging the gap and, and building relationships, uh, oftentimes officers are, it's almost kind of like they forget where they come from. You know, they put on that badge and uniform, and they just forget that, you know, we're all humans. We need to really work with each other. Yeah, you, yeah, right, man. We get emotionally hijacked. Emotionally well, hijacked. That's the that's yeah. the word there. Emotionally hijacked. Yeah, and you know, Keith, another disturb. You know, something else that I think that really needs to change, and I think it just goes back to when we talk about the. Black Lives Matter, we talk about the NAACP, we talk about other organizations that are really uh, trying to have this dialogue with law enforcement about changing the culture of policing. You have police administrators who want to ignore this term, and you have a president who does not even want to acknowledge that the the systemic racism that exists in law enforcement. And there's going to be some people who are listening, who are probably in law enforcement who will disagree with us or disagree with me and say, that's absolutely ridiculous. There is no systemic racism in law enforcement. So my question is, if there's not any systemic racism in law enforcement, why are we having the problems that we're having? Answer that question. If we didn't have, systemic racism, if we didn't have these issues, why do we continue to see the things that occur? Especially, and but we're so quick to come to the defense, or some people, to the defense of a 17-year-old who walks into, who goes into a city, who doesn't live there, who takes it upon himself with other people to claim that they're there to protect private property, and shoots 
and kills two people and seriously injures another. But he is put out, well, he was doing what he had the right to do. How does a 17-year-old have the right to carry that type of a weapon into a community claiming that he's there to help protect private property? Well, I mean, Virgil, it's just like when somebody says something like, well, if George Ford had just uh, cooperated, he wouldn't be in that situation. And, and and my thing is on that, that is that is the most ludicrous and the most in, uh, uh, insensitive thing that you can say. It doesn't matter what he did before then. It matters the fact that he was under, he was, he was compliant, he was under control, and, uh, you know, he was killed. That's the that's the thing we have to you know that bothers me. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and you know, Keith, we're coming up on uh, about three minutes uh, to the show ends, but you know, we want to remind our listeners that uh, you know if you cannot listen to the show live, or if you come in and catch part of the show, you know, uh, go back and check us out on the bachelornews.airtime.pro. That's the bachelornews.airtime.pro. You can catch us uh, every day of the week uh, from 4 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and just check your local listing where you are to, to catch uh, the rebroadcast of You and the Law. But, you know, Keith, uh, uh, and also we want to remind our listeners, please please go to our Facebook page, like our Facebook page, share it. We want to get our likes up and want to get the message out about You and the Law uh, on the Bachelor News Radio Network where, you know, probably one of the, the – uh, there are other podcast shows out here discuss law enforcement matters, but I think we're we're probably the one that is really uh, taking this on directly, Keith. Where where we're just having an, an honest conversation with our listeners about uh, things that are concerned to them, and and we also want to let you know, hey, if you've got a topic that you uh, would like to talk about or or come on the air and and talk to us. Feel free. That's what, this show is for you, and this show is not just about, you know, Chief Humphrey and Chief Green. This show is about our our, our listeners. Uh, because you know, Keith, as you know, we got some faithful listeners out there who are from Florida all the way up to Maryland, Virginia, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Arkansas. So uh, we just thank everybody for, for definitely uh, tuning in and listening to us. Yeah, and I know we are, we're getting close to time, but I got to say this, man. You know what, I, I, man, it's an honor being on radio with you. But let me tell you something. You, you know, man, oh, oh, you got to be. On. <laughs> but listen, you got to be a smooth. You got to be a smooth brother to have a name like L. A. Bachelor. Is that not smooth? That is smooth. Man, that is smooth. That's man. smooth, man. I mean, he is. He is probably one of the best producers that I've been around, and he is a smooth brother. And I will say, man, the Bachelor Pad is is an amazing show. But I just had to throw that out there, man. You've got to be a smooth brother to have a name like L.A. Bachelor. Hey, listen, guys. Say that. Thanks for saying that. The check is in the mail. Just want to let you know. (laughs) Appreciate it. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey! I gotta say this now. Now, as we come to a close, now L.A. is is a smooth brother. But I gotta say this now. I think we have got a smooth. uh, a, a, a smooth song at the end of our show. So LA has got the swag. He's got the, the smoothness. But we want to make sure you come back and listen to uh, you and the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We'll see you and have a good evening. 
All right. Goodbye, everybody. God bless.